Hello, listeners. Welcome to Inside Situation, a bi-weekly podcast where we share with you some of the conversations we're having inside the agency with our coworkers, our clients, and our partners. I'm Peter Ujicic, Head of Technology at Situation. And uh, unfortunately, I have to start the podcast off this week with a little bit of sad news. Lauren Bailey, former co-host of Inside Situation, has decided to move on and start her own business, and she's left the agency, so she won't be coming back to host the podcast, but I know she's going to be incredibly successful with her new venture, and I'm sure we'll bring her back for an update at some time in the near future. The good news that I get to share with you guys is that we're going to have not one, but two new permanent co-hosts joining me for Inside Situation. The first is Jordan Person from our new business team. If you've listened to the podcast before, you've definitely heard Jordan. And we've also got Kevin McCauley from our creative team. He's going to be joining uh, us in the roundtable. We recorded our first conversation earlier today, and uh, you guys are going to hear it in just a minute. Really hope you enjoy it. It was certainly a lot of fun on our end. Um, Two more things before we get started. Uh, I just want to thank all of you who sent an email into us uh, at podcast at situation.myc. Really appreciate your feedback and your suggestions and your encouragement. Uh, Also, those of you who have connected to us on Twitter or just come up to us and say, hey, I like what you're doing. Uh, It really means the world to us. It helps us want to make the podcast even better for you week after week, which we are really striving to do. Uh, And then the last thing is we have an event coming up uh, at the Rubin Museum on October 7th. Uh, That's a Wednesday. And if you don't have your ticket already for that, uh, you probably won't be able to get one. We are at capacity. Uh, That's the bad news. But the good news is we're going to be bringing some of the content from that event into future episodes of Inside Situation, uh, snippets of some of the presentations and, uh, you know, some of the questions that come up uh, out of those conversations. So don't worry if you if you can't make the event or if you can't get a ticket, uh, we'll be bringing you some of the highlights in future episodes. Uh, So that's it. Let's jump into our roundtable. We hope you guys enjoy it and uh, look forward to hearing more from you. Remember, email podcast at situation.nyc. And here we go. Hey, guys, this is Peter. Quick editor's note. I actually just got the date of our event wrong in what you just heard. It's actually going to be on Thursday, October 8th at the Rubin Museum. So we look forward to seeing you there. Uh, Otherwise, we will bring you topics into a future episode of the podcast. Thanks. Kevin and Jordan, welcome to your first official hosting duty related episode of Inside Situation. How are you guys doing? Doing great. I wish we had like a, a audience applause track to play right now. It feels like appropriate that there should That's be true. some some something can, to show we our can excitement. Add that in post. We could we could okay. definitely see if we can. I always have one in my head. So <laughs> I'm fine. I'm hearing it right now. Cheers I mean, and encouragement. What people can't see is that we're all wearing matching uniforms. So That's there right. is a, there is a level of camaraderie and professionalism that we're going for. Um, but yeah, so you know, we'll we'll save that for our, our live show. You look good in future, Peter. Thank <laughs> you. It's good. It's, that was a good choice. I, I appreciate that, Kevin. I try to look good for you. So the idea for this roundtable conversation is just that we're each gonna bring one topic in to talk about from the news or from blogs that we find interesting and uh, have the three of us chat about it and about what those implications of that story might be for the work that we do at Situation. And then, of course, at the end, we'll close out with our things not to miss. Uh, So without further ado, I just flipped a virtual three-sided coin in my head, and I have decided that, Kevin, you're going to go first. So what have you brought to the roundtable today? Terrific. Today, I brought... Uh, something about virtual reality and 360-degree video. You might have heard that CNN has teamed up with NextVR to bring you the Democratic uh, debate on October 13th. 
Uh, if you have a Samsung Gear VR headset, you can watch it in 360-degree virtual reality. And my question for you two is, when is enough enough <laughs> with, with virtual reality? I've seen a lot of cool examples of virtual reality uh, from brands and all kinds of things. This seems like a little much. And I was just wondering what your guys thought was on this and other cool examples or maybe some over-the-top unnecessary examples of VR headsets and things that you've seen recently. Yeah, I mean, well, I feel like, A, great topic. Great kicking us off on this. Yeah. Uh, thank this you. This is something, obviously, I feel like as an agency, we're talking about all the time. There's, you know, we're in, in more and more, and we have, like, fun kind of secret stuff in the works right now for some of our clients, which is cool on this front. But I, I don't know. I feel like this is kind of fun. I feel like, you know, I'm thinking back to the last Republican uh, debate, and there, I have to say, if I were a candidate... I would not like this. I would not want people to see. I mean, remember how hot that room looked? True, like literally temperature hot, you know, like everyone's sweating. I wouldn't want people to have like a 360-degree view of, of It's me. funny you should mention that Uh-oh. because they are going to make that debate available as well. You'll oh, be really? able to download it and watch the debate as it happened on your VR headset. So Donald Trump, 360 degrees. You can just watch him the entire time, wow. watch him react, nod his head. But but that's kind of my point in this scenario. It was a three hour going on twelve oh. hour debate. Yes, yeah. Each candidate spoke for probably a total of ten to fifteen minutes each. Mm-hmm. So what are you missing that you're not getting in the television experience here? Are you really going to be looking at, you know, Chris Christie's reaction to what Donald Trump is saying and, and looking around the room during this type of event? Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering if this is the audience for this. And yeah. are there opportunities where you can miss the mark? Even though it is, it is really cool that it's available yeah. and possible. Yeah. But is this too much? I don't know. Yeah, I think you bring up a really good point that you have to have the right kind of content and the right kind of event for this to be worth the effort and the trouble. And, and I mean that on both sides. These, you know, 360 video is hard to record. It's tricky to edit. Uh, and But it's also very isolating when you're consuming it. If I'm wearing a, a Samsung Gear headset, which we have one in the office, or a Google Cardboard, which we have many in the office, um, you are by definition sealing yourself off from anybody that you might be watching that event with. And I think a debate, you know, if you're sitting at home, you know, and your significant other is sitting on the couch and you both have these things strapped to your head, are you really going to be able to communicate with one another? Or what a lot of other people do is they, you know, live tweet these things. So you, you are focusing your attention like a laser just inside the mask when, when you're committing to that. And it, it kind of prevents you from doing anything else. Now, I think there is huge potential uh, for live, the kind of live events that we work on to use 360 video in a very clever and interesting way. Oh, definitely. Uh, the, the, you know, years ago, we put a camera in the back of the house at Hare on Broadway. And every night at the end of the show, the audience was invited to come up on stage to join the love-in curtain call and dance on a Broadway stage. And we had a camera that panned back and forth and zoomed in, and you could go the next day and tag yourself in that video. If we were planning that today, we wouldn't put that camera in the back of the house. We'd put a, a 360 camera on the stage, and we'd actually, you know, that's the way we'd want to execute it. And you could turn around and actually see as if you were there. So uh, I think it totally depends 
on the execution and there's a lot of bad executions because this is still so much in its infancy. But just to make sure that I understand the execution of it, in, in 360 video, you, I, if I'm the person, if I, Jordan, am the person who I've got on my virtual reality headset, mm -hmm. I'm controlling what I'm looking at, right? That's right. So You're literally turning your head. Yeah. There's a camera, when they record it, there's like a camera that has about eight cameras. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's a ring of cameras all pointing in every direction. Right. So you're catching everything that's being shot. And then your when you've got your phone in a headset, the little gyroscope in your phone knows which way you're looking. Just like when you're using Google Street View. And yeah, you can choose which part of the video you're watching at any given time. Because what I think is interesting to take a contrarian's point of view on uh, the debate is why, you know, why theoretically it's a great execution is that it allows me or anyone to create my own point of view on who I want to focus on, uh, mm -hmm. you know, within that platform. So even though obviously I'm dependent upon uh, whatever network has the rights and is ultimately kind of setting the agenda and asking questions and calling on people. At the same time, you know, the reality is that Donald, well, I can't remember exactly what the stats are, but it was like Donald Trump had, you know, X percent of airtime on the, uh, on, on the debate. And then, you know, Chris Christie or whoever, you know, the kind of out, the, the, the people, you know, less popular or less kind of enter with less entertainment value have fewer time. So then it's kind of like, I can be the judge of how I want to, you know, obviously they're not going to be speaking, but I can at least be paying attention to the people I want to pay attention to. Or I can also, I think what's also interesting in, in debates like that, you know, there's when you're working with two different parties who are interacting together, I can choose who whose interactions I'm focusing on. If I really want to focus on, maybe I'm interested in the journalists and what's going on on their side and how that maybe affects their interactions. I don't know. There's something kind of interesting to it. I don't know. I mean, those debates definitely make the people in the room uncomfortable. Yeah. And right. so there is a value there at what you're speaking. Of. Yeah. That I, I didn't think of that looking at the journalists reacting to how the, the debaters are reacting to their questions and maybe with getting ready with follow-ups or what they're yeah. going to ask next. That would be uh, Or even knowing like what, what in Donald Trump's uh, answer to a question makes Carly Fiorina put her pencil down on her notes and start making notes for her next response. You know, there's something that's kind of theatrical and fun about knowing like, oh, See, she, that's what she's I want. responding to something. I want headsets on the candidates. <laughs> So at they when they look down at their paper, I can see what they're writing. Yeah. They're like drawing their stick eyes. figures. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I we had a we did a tech showcase here in the office last year where we had uh, one of our partner vendors, Big Look three sixty. They actually brought in a three sixty video camera and to demo it, we put it in our small conference room. We had uh, Justin and Jordan. I don't know if you were. We had a few people kind yeah, of as guinea remember. pigs yeah. in the small room, and we had we were looking at the, the the crowd was looking at it in the large. I think 360 video has a huge potential future for for video conferencing mm -hmm. or like go to meeting because you could actually then choose who to look at in a meeting setting when they're talking or even even us recording this podcast right now. We should just get one. We should just buy yeah. a 360 video camera and record an episode of the podcast where people could look at us. Yeah. That'd be fun. Make it full circle, 360.
Yeah. Well, there, I read something yesterday that Google is doing this awesome uh, – this is not an official topic, you guys. I'm going off script here. This is – that they're doing some – I can't remember what it's called, but it's Expedition something and the Spe- Expedition Educators or something. But the spirit of it is is that they're going to provide – they're partnering with some of the most like amazing places in the world and creating incredible 360 experience, digital experiences, and then putting that in classrooms. So if I'm a teacher and I wanted to in, in, let's say, the South Bronx in New York City and I want to take my kids to the Great Wall of China, I can. And there's that's something cool. that, yeah, oh, very amazing. cool yeah. Well, about that. Or, you know, put it on the next Martian rover. Yeah, exactly. You know? they, they talked about Mars, actually. Yeah. They, they mentioned it. They were like, even Mars. Yeah. And there's a great audience for this, even in the live event space, because, you know, we deal with a lot of theater and things. And that's not accessible to all people. Mm-hmm. It's in one place. And obviously with virtual reality, the ability to transport people out of in time and space so easily uh compared to actually going to those places or the possibility of it is just so inviting and amazing well and you know that they're doing a lot of video broadcasts for live theater at least in london hasn't really taken off here so much yet but i'm sure it will and imagine if you were able to see a recording of something like uh fun home which is you know done in the round from the perspective of, of a camera that maybe was at the center of the stage, that mm-hmm. that could be a pretty interesting experience. Oh, yeah. Pol- you know, all the political recording of theater events aside, uh, that that would be probably interesting to watch. Fun home, if you're listening, that we like that idea. Try to make that happen. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, if for you, for our listeners, if you guys want to see some 360 video, there is a YouTube channel devoted to it. Uh, the YouTube app on your phone. Uh, works with 360 video and lots of people are creating this content now. So check it out and uh, tell us what you think the free, the future of the technology might be. Um, all right, moving on to our second topic, Jordan, what did you bring to the round table today? So I brought uh, a topic that feel is, is relevant to some of the agency's um, social activities that we do here. We have a book club at the agency, which is very popular. We're reading The Goldfinch right now, which is coming up for our meeting in November. But I was reading in the New York Times recently, there's a piece by Alexandra Alter, from the, who's from the Alexandra Alter, who's from the New York Times Book Review staff. And she was talking about how, you know, a few years ago, uh, particularly, you know, when the Kindle came out, everybody's talking about how the decline of print and how we're all going to be only reading ebooks, you know, by I think it was like 2020 or something. And now what we're what we're seeing in terms of uh, book sales is that we're kind of seeing this strange renaissance of print sales. And part of the reason there's a lot of reasons it's sounding like, but part of the reason is because. Um, you know, the, the price of ebooks is, has been a struggle, both from kind of the publisher and the creative side and from the distributor side. You know, so sometimes it's cheaper to buy the print version of the book that you're buying than the digital version. And in fact, the example that they use in the article is the Goldfinch, which is funny because that's, that's, I just went through this. I have a Kindle, but I ended up buying the paperback on Amazon because it was cheaper. It was like $3 cheaper, you know? So I don't know. I guess my question for you guys is, do you experience this? I certainly am, am someone who I was on the Kindle train all the way. And now all of a sudden I've just happened. I've been reading more real books. I don't know why. Anybody else? I'm very weird with my technology reading habits. Yeah. As well as in other areas of my life. But specifically, <laughs> as since we're talking about this, I will read I read the New York Times, I read the Wall Street Journal, and I read magazines on my iPad. Okay. And I love it. I don't miss it. I don't miss trying to elbow my way on the train with the New York yeah. Times and read it. But books, 
I have to buy the print book. Mm-hmm. I've never read an ebook, and I read up mm-hmm. to one and a half books a year. So <laughs> I'm what you might call an avid reader. Uh, no, I, I read pr- frequently enough, but always I get the hard edition. There's something about it that you're a book I, snob. You like to yes. have the hard, the, or not the hardback, but the you like to have the hard copy. Yeah, the like. hard copy. I like to put it on my bookshelf as a trophy that I did it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I even buy books. I'll buy like a bunch of books at once, and I'll put them up there, and that's my incentive to read it because mm-hmm. it's sitting there staring at me. So that that's my reading habit. That's how I've always approached it. There's also some something nice about the physical book uh, and sharing. Uh, yes. You know, it's a different gesture to, to loan someone a copy of a book that you have well-worn and have a special remembrances of. And I agree with the bookshelf thing as well. Uh, I just took a bunch of books that I had carted from apartment to apartment and donated them recently just because they were in boxes. They weren't even on the shelf. But my my habit is actually, I kind of skipped eBooks as well. Uh, my preferred method of consuming Books now is actually audiobook, um, but I agree with you, Kevin. I'm, I'm magazines, uh, newspapers, blogs. I'm all about reading them digitally, uh, you know. But but for me, I really like the idea of uh, you know, and I think that technology has come a really long way. Audible has done such an amazing job, uh, you know. Narrators who are, who are really acting out the performances, or sometimes books uh, like David Sedaris's books, which he reads which is, I think, just adds a whole other dimension of, yes. of getting into his, his head space with that. Um, so, yeah, I, but... Jim it, Dale reading the Harry Potter books. If right, anybody, Oh, right. my gosh, the greatest. Yeah, it's so, it's, I think that, you know, but the physical book, I think maybe there's an opportunity now for people to do more creative things with that. It's more kind of the artisanal crafting of this because we can consume it digitally, we don't have to, but we can, the book becomes, I think, a more special version of that content. And I, I think there's also something to do with the, um, the disposable nature of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think about, uh, you know, something like the New York Times, that's, that's very current, that's news, that's going to be out of date. I don't need to hold on to that. So hitting the delete button or just waiting for tomorrow's to come in doesn't mean the same thing. But a book that means something to me, I do want that to be in my face permanently. Yeah, it's it's interesting because even, you know, I, I don't subscribe in print to the New York Times. I subscribe digitally. But when my fiance and I are visiting his parents, they get the, the print paper every day, multiple ones. And on the weekends in the kitchen, which is where we all are hanging out, they're all strewn across the, the, the island in the kitchen. And there is a really nice communal element of like, hey, you could, did somebody read this? Did you read this? Or right. the crossword being out and everybody who's walking by picking up and adding something to it. So that, you know, I miss that. Right. I miss that. And swapping that. sections. Yeah, you know, exactly. You know, I have the Fighting style section, it. so yeah. you can't have yeah. it. When everyone's looking at it on their phones, you don't have that It that, does that feel more disposable. It feels, it, yeah. it almost, you know, I hate to say it decreases the value because I don't think that's true. Um, but there's an element of, you know, there is, you're, you're giving something up when it's so easily accessible, but you also gain so much you're reading it on the subway without elbowing somebody and you're reading it you know on the elevator waiting for the elevator on your way up or you know there's so many places to read it but that does raise an interesting point about this kind of rise of an expansion of disposable content and what that means and the different types of contents we consume you know like do you guys find that you Read, so do you ever do you ever read long form content, Kevin, on your phone or on your iPad? Like for example, the New York Times, the magazine stories, which are you know much longer, 
pieces. Do you do you find that you read those on your phone or are you I less... will read those. Okay. Yeah. So again, my personal rating system of what I will and will yeah. not read in digital form is very peculiar. I find it I find it's a strain uh, on the eyes with an illuminated screen. Uh-huh. I, d- I bought a first edition Kindle years ago and I can tell you the drawer that it's sitting in in my house right now. I read a few books on it. Uh, I, I was really intrigued by kind of the newer ones that are, you know, much more the paper white and the yeah. natural, uh, because I, I, I can't read, you know, especially if I'm on the subway and I'm bouncing around, I find reading a long form piece on a tablet or on my phone, it gets me a little motion sick. Mm-hmm. So, but I think with the technology where it's not like an illuminated screen, there, there may be a whole different experience with that. And, you know, it's, they're, they're lowering the prices on those. I, th- I think an e-reader can be a supplement to something else. And kind of what I like about the basic ones is if if I'm carrying my e-reader, I'm not going to be tempted not to read the thing I'm supposed to read or I want to read and play uh, Angry Birds instead, you know? Yes. No, there is an element of yeah. – well, he, okay, here's a question because I don't, I don't have an iPad, but I imagine if I did and I were reading something on the iPad, I would get distracted by the other stuff that pops up, like, yeah. you know, the text that just came in or whatever. I only recently started using an iPad for everyday use, mm-hmm. for, and it's completely changed my life from my commutes and things like that and just being somewhere, so much more mobile – and being able to watch all this wonderful disposable content mm-hmm. that is out there now. I can consume so much more of it. Uh, so it's been a great tool for that. Yeah. Well, I think the, the answer at the end of the day is print is not dead, which I think we're all very happy about. Um, in fact, we at Situation are just about to dip our toe into the, for, into the world of creating printed pieces. Uh, if you're coming to our upcoming event, more information there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm just, you know, personally happy that, that you know, ebooks have not squashed traditional publishing. You know, I, I think. Yeah, there's definitely room for both. Yeah. There's so many. How they work together. Yeah. Well, I think the difference also between ebooks and if you look at maybe the music industry and where they went with going digital and piracy and all that, yeah. was that for ebooks, it's more of a storage issue, I believe. Mm-hmm. People like the idea of having all their books with them all the time. And while that is also a driver for the music industry, there it was also about illegal downloading and being able to get something that you shouldn't be getting for free. That really wasn't a driver with ebooks. With ebooks it was more about convenience and space and being able to access multiple books at the same time, which you, you can't carry five books with you. Well you can, but it'd probably right. be annoying. Right. So there was definitely a different driver for the ebook revolution and and for textbooks specifically oh I definitely mean, as, as someone who grew up carrying his ap calculus book and his you know five other textbooks around in high school giving and myself scoliosis you know the when when all of that can be in one device i think that's that's a game changer maybe it already is i don't know i'm not in school well you guys have actually just made <laughs> me think of something that we're talking a lot about leading up to this current event and i mean really this is something we talk a lot about in the agency outside of outside this is in everything is so one thing that i know on that's very controversial about what happens on at least kindles i don't think it happens on other e-readers is that if you are self-published on amazon or maybe even if it's not if you're self-published i, I don't know the, I'm, I'm sorry that i don't know the details but that they're tracking you some people are compensated some writers are compensated based on how far people read in the book. I have so heard in, of that. Yeah. Yes. So in other words, if people are only making their way 30% through my book, I'm only making 30% of what 
I expected to make, or, or I don't know exactly what the financial deal is. But th- that's interesting because that leads to a whole other world, which again, is something we're addressing head on in this event is like as talent, as, as, da- as we're having access to all these more mounds of data, there's all these decisions that are being made about the content of, and about the consumption of the content that in a sense, like isolates the creatives whether you are, you know, a baseball player who on MLB, whose, you know, stats are being tracked in such a way that you, you know, you you become a number and your every move is questioned in terms of how you're making a play because they can now track the speed at which you're coming at the base. And therefore, Mm. oh, you actually should have slid, not ran, you know, ran through the base or whatever it is, you know, like, and they're not even involved in those conversations. And yet it completely affects how they're valued, and in a sense, their livelihood. That's going to be, I think, a huge point of conflict over the next five years as we kind of explore having access to all this data and what that means. Although that's been happening, even if you go back to the radio industry years mm-hmm. ago when people, they'd go and say, listen, we need you to cut this song. We love your four and a half minute version of this song, but we need you to cut it down to two and a half minutes so we can play on the radio. And artists dealing with that, I know like Billy Joel, as an example, had a really hard time accepting oh, that. He's yeah. like, no, this this is the piece. Right. So imagine sitting down a writer and say, you know, People seem to be turning off your book at 30 pages. So why don't you write a 30-page book? Yeah. Why don't you take this and condense it down? That is an interesting conversation to have with any creative. Well, I mean, I think the argument, uh, you could say that this has already been done in the online news industry. Clickbait or, you know, how many people share your story is defining how that content is created. It doesn't surprise me that it would move into kind of fiction uh, or, or the long-form book. It is it is kind of sad, and, and I think... You know, there, there's always going to be a segment of the population that revolts against that kind of thing. I think with good with good purpose, and I think you can can I think you can be a lover of technology and a lover of data, and also not want to track everything that you do in your life. I, I think you can contain <laughs> those multitudes, and I think we can say certain things. We're just going to reject that idea that we're rewarding only the people that uh, write the salacious thing. Uh, you know. I don't know if you guys have ever read David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest. I made it through it in my late 20s, 1,200 page book. Uh, but, you know, I was very tempted to stop many times on the way through. Uh, and, and I think, but I'm, I'm, again, like you said, Kevin, it's one of those trophy books. It sits on my bookshelf. And I can actually say that I did read it, not in kind of like a snobby asshole way, but, you know, like I can like it, a success way. I'm glad I did that it. I stuck yeah. with it. And I can say that I also have Infinite Jest on my bookshelf. And I tell people I read it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny when in, when I was reading about this whole like thirty percent, how what what percent of people read the Goldfinch, which it keeps coming back to. That was an example they used of like a book that obviously had an incredible amount of press, incredible amount of success, both critically and you know commercially. But if you look at how many people actually finished it according to Amazon data, it was like. I think definitely less than half, maybe even more. Well, and we see that play out uh, coming full circle in our own book club. Yes. (laughs) I've certainly been guilty of that where I come at the beginning and I just vote on the next book, but I'm like, I didn't make it through guys. I'm sorry. Yeah. I was just, I just remembered an interesting point that you brought up Peter before about how the ebook challenges also maybe challenges publishers and writers to use those forms differently. And I thought of comic books, Mm. which 
they are having or have been having an electronic revolution as well and mm-hmm. the battle between like do you look buy your comics online or do you buy them uh, buy the hard copies but if you now if you read comics online there are some really cool things that happen in the panel some really cool different layouts mm-hmm. so that's a great example of an industry that is embracing the digital as a different art form right it's it's complementary to the hard copy but it also adds value in a different way uh, almost makes you want to have both uh, which would be great. <laughs> that. Yeah, you, so, you, you, I mean, I just wonder what do you have any sense of if that has been a kind of invigorating shot to the comics industry? The fact that now people can read them on their tablet has it has it because I would imagine with more eyeballs, you know, you, there, there's less of a chance you go to the comic shop and they're out of what you want. You know, do, do you think that that's a good thing for that industry? I have no idea. <laughs> um, I am, yeah, definitely not a comic book expert. Uh, I mean, I like you said. I imagine that there are that it's definitely had a positive impact in certain areas, and then again, negative impact in others. In terms right. of you know those comic book stores, they're centerpieces for that community in that right. area. So what's you know what happens there? Like that used to be a watering hole where people would go and talk and argue mm-hmm. about the comics, and now that's happening online. But it was yeah. happening online anyway. So I, I'm. Like you, I'm interested to know what the deeper impacts of that have been. That is an interesting Well, idea. maybe we have a listener who knows, who could write into us and educate write us. Write into us via snail mail. Uh, well, I was going to give you an email address, podcast yeah. at situation.nyc. Send your thoughts uh, about uh, the future of books. Um, all right. So the last topic um, that I want to want to bring to the table for our roundtable, um, I want to talk about software. And I want to talk about specifically the scandal with Volkswagen, uh, you know, for those of you who don't know, just, just recently, uh, I'm, I'm reading verbatim here, Volkswagen cars came with software that could figure out when the car was being tested for polluting emissions. The software figured this out based on the car's steering activity, engine running time, and barometric pressure. Uh, and when it was in the test mode, it would switch, uh, lower the emissions so that the, the car would pass the test. And then when it was actually on the road, I think some estimates say they were emitting, you know, 30, 30 or 300 times the amount that they were allowed to by law. And the reason I wanted to bring this to you guys is just to, to, to kind of have a conversation about, you know, the trust that we all put every day in software. Um, we trust software to fly our planes. We trust software to show us what to buy online, um, you know, and and as someone who's been on the side of writing some code, I'm not a developer myself, but uh, you know, we've all had that experience where there, the bug shows up or the thing shows up that we didn't expect. This Volkswagen example is different because you know, this wasn't buggy software. This was intent on behalf of the car maker to have the software do something that, uh, was, that they were hiding. So what do, what do you guys think about that? I mean, I, I think this is, you know, you can easily lump this in with some of the tracking conversations we've been having because, you know, what, what people don't know, when people don't know or they think that something is going on that's not being conveyed to them, they get suspicious. But I think when people understand what's happening and, and I know that Netflix is making recommendations to me based on the information that I give it, is there a difference in your mind between, you know, how far you trust software to make decisions for you to, or to help you run your life? Yeah, I mean, it's, this is, it's so interesting. I mean, I feel like it's, it's hard because when I think about the Volkswagen example, I, it just seems so different 
from any anything else that I'd heard of of late in that in the it, just because of the intent. Right. You know, the intent it just feels crazy to me. But what's scarier to me about it is that, okay, these are the people that got caught. Right. Like, if this is happening here, this can't be an isolated occurrence. Yeah, and, and, you know, going back to the Netflix example, we assume that Netflix is showing me things that it thinks I will like based on what it's, what it's learning about me. But what if they just crank up the, the dial on this show that they have a, a lucrative deal with yeah. so that they get more, more eyeballs on it? Uh, you know, we just... When it's a closed system, we just have no way. There's an implicit trust mm. as software becomes more and more sophisticated. It's so true. In a way, it's like, it's, it makes me just feel like, wow, I don't even know. I have no idea what I'm, you know, in bed with in terms of right. just everything that I'm doing online. Because everything I, I feel, I think almost everything I do online these days has some element of people tracking something about me to serve me something that should theoretically be more valuable to me, even if it is just should, should be able to serve me advertising that should be closer to my genuine interests. But no, it, 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 it honestly is not something that I think about on, a, on, an, on an ongoing basis. Definitely not something I think about every day. Um, but I'm probably not going to sleep at night. Thanks, Peter. <laughs> no, no. Sure. It, when you think about it, it is crazy. It's crazy. Well, isn't this the kind of thing when I hear about this and I believe who was it that discovered the default, the problem? Was it the EPA who actually discovered it? They're or? the ones who led the prosecution. I don't know if they figured it out. I, I think, and, yeah. and the, the shocking thing is it's making news a lot now, but apparently this has been known for like over a year. So it's just kind of breaking now and reaching critical mass. But what were you, you, you were saying? No, my point is, shouldn't there, isn't this one of those things like with hacking and with malware and viruses where there needs to be, you know, a kind of there needs to be an agency that's working just as hard uh, to find the tricksters as there are the people who are trying to trick the softwares, trick the consumers. Basically, like who has that responsibility? Well, it's it, I think that's kind of the philosophy behind the whole open source code movement. Uh, you know, when there is transparency, you know, there there are a lot of people that uh, advocate for any software to be peer reviewed, kind of like scientific journals. That if you can go in and audit the code and see what it's doing, that the the masses will ensure that what's being conveyed is really happening. But a lot of businesses um, have very proprietary code. Microsoft's code is, is not open. So, you know, Windows is not open sourced. Linux is, you know, so there's a whole, you know, the I think you, you really hit on the nail on the head that uh, anybody is corruptible, but everybody is not. So if, if, if it's if it's like transparent to the world then that's the only way to really ensure that what's happening is what they say is happening. I just find it, I find it interesting that with all the things that are going on with privacy and then this Volkswagen issue, that there isn't a government body. As much as I think that the people can and should have access as well to see the kind of things that are being tracked, if you're interested. I mean, I'm never going to go look at the code of the things I'm using, go, oh, nope, I don't like that, and then take right. myself off it or not use it. But I feel like, you know, there should be a better business bureau of software well, that does review these Or things. even at the very least, a transparency grade. You know, it's like, you know, in, in New York City, in restaurants, you know, you have the, the, the letter grades that are on the window that are related to the, you know, uh, health sanitary code. But, you know, I don't know, is there a world where... Uh, 
software or technology organizations have some sort of grade that is related to their transparency that, you know, at the, at, on one hand does nothing. It really does nothing except, uh, you know, uh, celebrates those organizations who are transparent um, and at least calls attention to the fact from a, from a consumer facing perspective that, you know, you may not code may mean nothing to you, but at least delivers a message that's, that, that helps communicate why someone should care. Right. That's a great idea, Jordan. Thanks, Kevin. I like that a lot. <laughs> the, I, I think that the one thing that I'll say that is a challenge for that is the secrecy is also this, you know, where the money lies. Yeah. Google's yeah. algorithm is not public. Yeah. You know, we trust that Google is sending the results that are, you know, the market kind of decides yeah. whether or not Google will succeed, but they are certainly private. Yeah. You know, their, their mission used to be, it maybe still is, you know, don't be evil. Yeah. But we, we kind of are trusting that they're just following that. Yeah. The perfect tagline to make no one suspect they are being <laughs> evil. <laughs> not evil over here. No, no evil. Uh, yeah. So, uh, It'll be interesting to see, you know, as people pay more attention and more examples of stories come out like this, how we all adapt, uh, you know, and and just kind of question, you know, how much trust we're putting in these systems that we all use absolutely every single day. Um, And I think there's going to be, I think we'll see more of this kind of stuff, more, more revelations. That's my, well, yeah, I mean, think about even over the past year, like, I feel like there's been so many major, uh, privacy data software moments. I mean, oh, yeah. I mean, Volkswagen, Sony, those are the two, I mean, those are the two that immediately come to mind, but then there's so many smaller ones that I feel like it's every day I'm reading, Oh, the government, there's been a breach in the government security and, you know, 3 million Americans yeah. information has been, uh, let out, you know, whatever it is. It's all out there. Yeah. Just to be, just waiting to be found. Yeah. Well, thank you guys so much that this is, I think been a great conversation. I really appreciate your bringing topics and, uh, and I uh, hope our listeners enjoyed it as well. So before we go, we want to go around the room real quick and do our thing not to miss. Uh, this time, Jordan, why don't you start? Great. Well, I feel like my thing not to miss is very appropriate today because of the, the cooler weather coming in. Uh, and uh, yeah, so what I would say is, and this is more for myself and, and obviously for our listeners too, but I want to get to Central Park again sometimes before sometime before it gets too cold to just enjoy the um the last last little bit of warm weather or the the beginnings of fall of course take my pumpkin spice latte and, uh, and, and do some and leaf peeping. It. And just, do some know. leaf peeping. That's right. Pumpkin spice latte. I've never heard of that. Is you that haven't. a new thing? <laughs> That sounds delicious. I think they just invented it. Yeah. That's amazing. You should, you should, you should, you should yeah, uh, try it. I'm going to go out right yeah. now and get one. It's, a, awesome. it's uh, as the internet would say, it's a very basic activity going to get your pumpkin spice latte. Well, I try to live, Central Park. I try to live my life as basic as possible. <laughs> so sounds right up my alley. Great. Kevin, what do you think people shouldn't miss? The Muppets are back on ABC every Tuesday night. Uh, I'm a big Muppet fan, big Jen Hens- Jim Henson fan, and I'm really excited. Uh, first two episodes have aired. They're awesome. Go back and watch them and support a puppet or a Muppet near you. It's very important. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. I, I, I'm still getting used to, uh, you know, this is a more adult Muppets, you know, which I think is actually a lot more similar to the original Muppet show. So I love that kind of appropriate for all ages. Uh, but yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I think it's, uh, I really am pulling for it. I hope it's successful. I feel like Kermit is as real as he's ever been. Mm. <laughs> like, I feel like I could meet him and we could be friends and share a pumpkin spice latte 
in Central Park. In a walk through Central Park. I feel that more than ever, and that is a a gift that keeps on giving. Excellent. Well, the the thing that I want to recommend that I don't think anybody should miss uh, is is an experience to be had uh, on your music device of choice. The Hamilton cast recording was just released, and I cannot stop listening to it. Uh, There's just, you know, people are going to be more eloquent about it than, than I am, but... Uh, if you are a fan of cast recordings, if you're a fan of theater, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda's heart and soul is in this thing. Recent MacArthur winner. Recent, yes, exactly. Uh, it, it's just so great. Um, you know, it's it's only available digitally right now. I think it's coming out on CD soon. But um, get yourself a copy. Listen to it. It's just a lot to love, a lot of music, and you'll be glad that you did. And to honor it, Peter is going to drop uh, – a rhyme right now. He's going to freestyle <laughs> about his love for Hamilton. Take it away, Pete. So thanks for listening to Inside Situation. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, if I could do that, Kevin, I absolutely would. It's just not in my skill set, I promise you. Um, this has been this has been fun. Thank you guys so much for, for chatting. Thank you to all of our listeners for, for downloading us. Uh, if you have any suggestions, you just want to get in touch with us, please send us an email at podcast at situation.myc, and we can't wait to see you again in two weeks. Bye-bye. Bye.